0: This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 50, our discussion with representatives of the patient and patient advocacy communities, plus from The Vault, my interview earlier in the year with biohacker par excellence and bestselling author, Dr. Marcus Ranney. This week, our conversation from The Vault comes from Season 3, Episode 24.5, the Innovations in Clinical Care Conference coverage from the Barcelona meeting. This conversation shares my interview with Dr. Marcus Ranney. It's longer than our typical conversation, but quite far-reaching. we from Marcus's exceptional background in history to his interest in mitochondria and human performance to the process of founding Human Edge and developing his upcoming Mito app. The conversation centers around human potential, the role that data can play in empowering individuals to manage their own health better, and Marcus's vision and hopes for the future. Reviewing this conversation reminded me of how vast the future of patient empowerment can be and why it is so exciting. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Marcus Ranny yeah,
1: so it was a phrase that was mentioned in the conference and I think Jorn mentioned it first, this idea of health care. We, you know, as doctors as physicians we call ourselves health care experts, but really there's very little health in our care. It's mainly a pathogenesis, pathogenic disease-centric system. And that's just the way it is, which is which is fine, but I became more and more disenfranchised with this idea of just looking at the sick element and started my own journey of figuring out, well, if I want to augment my health, my well-being, my longevity, what are the various things that I need to do? And that me down a journey i was a management consultant for about four or five years i then founded a venture fund which started to invest in interesting mobile technologies to help individuals enhance their health from nutrition apps to personal at home gene testing apps to dietary recommendation apps telemedicine apps etc and then i i sort of fell into this idea of of entrepreneurship and really As I increasingly became more and more fascinated with metabolic health from my own study of longevity, particularly catalyzed through the pandemic, and I fell ill with COVID the first time in the first wave, which was in August of 2020, and I've often spoken about this because I think it's important for people to appreciate that, yes, whilst this is a disease mainly of the elderly, mainly of people with comorbidities, there is a significant population who are young, who are fit, who are healthy, who do get the disease, and who are impacted very significantly. And unfortunately, I found myself in that category. I have since had the virus three times. Uh, each time, it takes me at least a minimum of two months to get over it, specifically because of the long COVID syndromes that I have. Uh, and in the first wave, when I had this, because everything was so new, I was put on high-dose steroids for a long period of time. And that unfortunately tipped my metabolism my metabolism towards becoming pre-diabetic. Uh, and since then, I've had to really look at my blood glucose levels very carefully. And it sort of led me down the hacking journey, which we can talk about later on. But that sort of led me to this idea that there is this huge amount of data that each of us is creating. The average person in the Western developed world creates two megabytes of data a second. All of that is mostly being used to watch something we shouldn't watch, date someone we shouldn't, buy something we shouldn't, eat something we shouldn't, et cetera. Very little is used to augment the human experience. And that was where the fascination came in, is can I use that information about myself first to build a mechanism to help me hack my operating system? which is my physiology. Uh, and that sort of unearthed this product that we're now building at Human Edge, which I presented at the conference.
0: So let's go on to talk about that a little bit about founding uh, Human Edge and writing the book and then creating the app the specifics of that journey.
1: I I started writing the book when my wife and I became pregnant for the first time seven years ago and it really initiated as a conversation between Raina and I, Raina, my wife and I, when she mentioned one day, oh, you know, you you, you often talk about these stories you've had about doing these crazy, interesting expeditions to various parts of the world and, you know, it might be interesting just to pen them down and then we could look at it when when we're much older and I thought that's a really fascinating idea so I started to just jot these stories down and I wrote it to the a lens that okay, you know, I'm not yet a dad, but I will be a dad soon. I love biology and I'd love to give my soon to be born child the gift of hopefully falling in love with science with the same rigor and passion that I have. And so that was the inspiration behind the book at the human edge. It was to create a vehicle that I could put science down, not from a scientific text perspective, but through a narrative of bringing the great world of the outdoors, such as climbing a mountain like Everest, running a marathon, going to Mars, uh, diving in the Mariana Trench surviving in the Arctic or crossing the Sahara. All of these very stories of extreme human environmental physiology, but then use that as a vehicle to take the person inside into their cells and show them how their cellular physiology adapts, responds, and becomes just so resilient to these extremes. And so that was the inspiration for the book. I had the manuscript ready. I published it in January of 2021. It did very well. I think the global intersection about the natural narrative of well-being, the fact that so many people had been locked in for so long and therefore missing the great outdoors and going to nature to do these extreme sports, etc., sort of came together really well. And so this book started to do well. And and on the back of that, I started to get invited by various corporations to speak to their leadership about the lessons of physiology and how we can apply them to our lives. And that slowly evolved over a period of time to become more and more data-centric, technology-enabling, uh, and productized into the application which is now currently underdeveloped
0: so that application is called mito am i correct exactly
1: inspired by as i said mitochondria 20 years in the making in halloween of 2005 i was so obsessed with this damn thing that i on halloween i actually dressed up as captain mitochondria i made him up uh, i had a, a cape of invincibility i had a mask of efficiency i had all these little superpowers yes and once again my wife didn't know me at the time she she she's very grateful for that but um but but that costume still hangs proud in various parts of my cupboard. And who knows, one day, maybe it'll come back. Uh, how,
0: how old were you in 2005? <laughs> I was um, 21 years old. Much better. I had this fear that you were seven, you know, and I was picturing this little <laughs> child running around in this outfit, at which point I would have understood why your wife would have said, not only do I not want to know you, but boy, I hope, you're, I hope our kids have my interest, not your interest, but that that's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> so how does Mito, the app? work?
1: The application is a very simple premise. It's based on the premise that we're creating a lot of information and data about ourselves. That data currently resides in various silos, various real estates of technology. It may exist in an app, it may exist in a device, it may exist in a platform. The idea of MITO is to bring that information together in an integrative, holistic manner. And that information, by the way, is your information of your biology. CGM, Continuous Glucose Monitoring Data from the Abbott or the Dexcom patch, your sleep data, which might come to from your Aura ring, your step data, your heart rate variability data, which might come to you from your Apple or Garmin device, et cetera. So there is a growing group of individuals who have access to these technologies. It's actually exploding by the way. In 2020, it was an eight billion dollar industry. At the end of next year, at the end of 2022, it will be a twenty-one billion dollar industry globally. So it's you know it's it's vastly exploding around the world. So the idea was to bring this information into a platform, integrate that to allow individuals to then look at it firstly in an integrative holistic manner but then secondly, this is where the intelligence comes in, is running a series of different algorithms that we've been building with various professors and institutes here in order to help the individual know what is that prescriptive thing. So, yeah, I'll, I'll share the example of what I shared with the audience uh, at the conference a few days ago. And this was N equals 2. This is the data for me and the data for my wife. When is we uploaded all the same information, so four weeks of continuous glucose monitoring data, a specific metabolic panel for the audience, it was our lipid profile, our AST, HbA1c, fasting, insulin, and uric acid. So blood-based panel, CGM data, and four weeks of Apple Watch data. And the algorithm was able to suggest, based on the understanding of who I am and who my wife is, what is the prescriptive nature, what needs to be creative to maintain steady state. This was specifically looking at nutritional output and exercise output. So when it came to nutrition, it recognized that for my body, I require 2,200 kilocalories a day, that based on the responsiveness of my insulin levels and the responsiveness, therefore, in my CGM data, that I should be mainly on a low-carb, so carbohydrate diet, less than 15% fats and then proteins, and that I should break my meals into four smallish meals in the day rather than do what I currently do, which is take an 18, 16 to 18-hour fasting uh, or window and then eat one massive meal at end of day. And then specifically looking at all the exercise parameters that my Apple Watch logs in, skiing, cycling, uh, swimming, running, walking, trekking, etc in order for me to maintain a state of energy neutrality end of day for each of those exercise parameters, what frequency, what volume and what intensity I should do to maintain that. And, you know, as one could expect for Ryan, it was fundamentally different for her. It was 1800 kilocalories for her. It was the fact that she can actually have a much higher carbohydrate load up to 50% of her diet can be carbohydrates. And she can actually do very well with her fasting So two meals in a day rather than my four smallish meals in a day. And then obviously the exercise was curated to her, which is mainly high intensity, tabata, Pilates, yoga, walking, etc. So I always find this fascinating because I think for the physicians in the audience who have patients who come to them asking, you know, doc, should I be doing X? Should I be doing Y? What is the diet that I should be on? How much exercise that I should be taking, etc. We are working in a direction, and I say direction because it's a journey. I'm not in any way saying that this is perfected. It's going to be a journey that takes us many years to f- perfect. But at least we're moving in a direction that's able to understand the person sitting in front of us, the data which is being created on the back of the, the devices that they currently already have, and that device load is just going to increase exponentially over a period of time, and allow us to use some smart intelligence to be able to suggest to that person, you should try this. And based on that quote, unpres- prescription of lifestyle, use biomarkers, which are blood based, which are digital based, epigenetic, we're just doing some experiments on epigenetic and microbiome as well. Maybe that will be included in the panel going forward. But use biomarkers to actually know, is our lifestyle prescription of use to the individual and bring that person into the experiment? Because ultimately, they want to be empowered to know what to do. They want to feel like they're included in that conversation and that they can look at their own sense of health and data to know which journey is best suited for them. Or frankly, if this is not working and whether I should need to do something else and make it a data-centric conversation with that human being. Being that we're trying to empower, i.e. our
0: patients. So that's a fantastic vision, first of all. Let me start by noting that. And I want to come back to the phrase, data that we are creating later, because I think that's one of the rather inherent issues, uh, both, both strengths and issues around this kind of an approach. I want to take the rest of our time and I want to explore two specific sets of que- kinds of questions, okay? First question, kind of a macro question about the conference, if you will. Uh, what I thought made this conference so interesting was the intersection, although I'm not sure everything intersected. Uh, the, the amalgamation of three very different views of what healthcare might be. The first being what I'm going to describe as heal the sick, right? We have 25% of the world already has NAFLD. Uh, one or 2% of the world already lives with uh, advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis. And certainly the advanced fibrosis cirrhosis people need help and they need help now. So we talk about drugs, we talk about diagnostics, we talk about a whole bunch of different kinds of omics as a way to understand what's at the heart of the disease. That's point number one, funded by um, research grants, funded by drug companies, diagnostic companies, etc. Step one back from there and you get to what we call disease prevention. In this case, I think mostly among the less aware. People in the world who have NAFL tend to live in lower socioeconomic environments, tend to eat worse diets, tend not to have any regular intersection with, or interaction with health care at all. And we do not have enough hepatologists and specialists to help these people, but they probably don't need them. They probably would do just fine with primary care and with uh, allied health professionals like nutritionists, et cetera, if in fact everybody were appropriately trained to understand what was going on and could get to the right place. And there, the focus would be less on fatty liver per se and more on all-cause metabolic prevention. We know about the links between obesity, diabetes, and fatty liver, for example. And then step one back from there, and now we're talking about the empowerment of data consumers, which is really where you are. Providing tools for the technologically aware and self-empowering to improve their own health. And now, historically, the view has been manage their own health, but you're not talking about management. You're talking about improvement. You're really talking here about the use of data to optimize the individual health experience on the planet. Those are three very different visions. It is to Jeff's and Jorn's credit to, to take these three visions and put them into the same event. I'd like you to comment how, in your mind, having been a clinician, having been a research physician, and now being a data empowerment entrepreneur, how you see those three pieces going together together in the world over the next 10 or 20 years as data becomes cheaper, technology becomes more prevalent, and this disease also becomes far more prevalent.
1: Let me just say that I absolutely love the way you very beautifully, Roger, articulated the power of what we just experienced over the last two days in Barcelona, considering it was such a concise, efficient agenda. We were able to cover all of these things. And I, I think to Jeff's vision and to Yorn's vision, this has an amazing capacity to create real global change in the years and decades to come. So, you know, full power to those two gentlemen and all the people involved behind the scenes uh, in making this happen. I'm hugely excited by being able to participate in a small way towards that agenda. Uh, you, you, you spoke exactly the thread that, that excites me, which is about this idea of optimization. I think mitigation, management, curation. These all have very, very important places in society and will continue to play an incredible part. And this is where sort of pharmaceuticals, nutraceuticals, diagnostics, all of these things comes in. But I truly believe that if we as a planet are to address The unsustainable economic costs of health to our, or disease, I should say, to our global economy, if we are to alleviate the suffering that exists today, principally because of a very systemic creation about the food industry, about agriculture, about energy creation, about urbanization, all of these things which are affecting the human experience. And more. I think we need to use the tool that we have, which we currently have in our greatest advantage, which is data. Which is a tool. Ultimately, it is a tool that can be leveraged, that can be manipulated, and that can be crafted in a manner to optimize that human experience. And if we're doing it to enhance what a person buys, or watches, or wears, or travels, or communicates, or holidays, or purchases, etc., why can we not do it to the most fundamental, basic of everything that we have that we care the most of, which is our health and our time? And so. that's the vision and that's why I believe that unlocking this power of data which in no way is perfect yet but I think by having all of these smart brains together in the same room and by getting their experiences and their wisdom and their knowledge and understanding how this particular facet will integrate with some of the other pathways that you just described whether it's the acute management or the chronic or the diagnostic or the pharmaceutical etc. I think it has a very very important part to play across that ecosystem so I couldn't agree with you more.
0: Thank you. So the interesting question there is how do they converge, right because the way I articulated it and the way I envision it is that they really are designed for a different cl- the way the world works today, different socioeconomic strata and different sets of issues. The reality is that while fatty liver disease tends to tilt towards the socioeconomically underserved, it fundamentally anybody can be sick. Okay, the disease tends to tilt towards bad diets and lower society. in fact, strongly tilts, but it's it's because because genes are random and omics are quasi-random. That could happen to anybody. Most of the people it happens to, though, fall into that second category, inadequate prevention and inadequate knowledge about prevention, which is really cheap, right? The third group, The group that seeks to optimize tends to have a different set of goals for their lives and a different level of economic resource to put towards that. So what I'm wondering is where the intersection is and and specifically in your context, how far over time can this optimization via app vision take us as a world? And what will be the determinants in terms of how fast it, and whether it gets there?
1: Yeah, I think it's a very fair question. And I, I remind everyone that this is in many ways the journey. I'm just looking if I have a pen. I do have a pen, I have a biro. And it's it's interesting to know that devices like these were were some of them were created for, for using on the International Space Station, much like any other technologies that we have, like GPS, microwaves, telephones, etc. All of these now have massive impact on everyday lives, but they were originally created for a very specific use case. And it was the democratization of that tool and that technology which has allowed it to create so many different facets and, and influences in our day-to-day lives. It is not unrealistic to imagine that with the right tools Tweaks and with some fundamental changes happening on the background, which I believe will be truths in the next three to five years. One of which will be an increasing commoditization of consumer devices that creates these devices and it no longer being limited to the very few but being widely available to everyone. Number two is as we see an increasing amount of 4G, 5G, Starlink internet technology, the ability of everyone, every human being around the planet to be connected in real time to data, to a cloud and send and receive information and education and awareness to be the second. And I think COVID has been the great digital transformation of our time. Again, a a sentiment that I mentioned in my conversation where today you interview 100 patients, 93% of them will say that they are now comfortable in engaging virtually through an app with their healthcare provider. This was not the case two years ago. That number would have been less than 10%. So there have been massive changes to our world and the way we behave and technology, et cetera, et cetera. So I I believe that whilst right now the experiments are happening for a limited group of people, and I completely appreciate that sentiment, I think as a group of individuals, clinicians, primary care physicians, diagnostic providers, patient advocate groups, all of those folks who are in the room, if we can bring our minds to it, we can increasingly move that technology to allow for that great bottom of the pyramid, the people living in MENA and South Asia, the people living under 30 years old, the people living on less than $5 a day who are being smashed by this tsunami of metabolic health and disease and empowering them with these small, simple, but ultimately prescriptive and personalized recommendations for them to help push that health span window as far back as they can. The probability of living to being 120 is almost hard-coded in our genes and most human beings should be able to get to that number. About 12 to 18% is is, is down to our genes. The other 80%, basically, is to three things. The in- physical environment that we place ourselves in, the decisions we make, such as the food we eat, the exercise we, we partake in, et cetera, and the people we surround ourselves with. So these generally influence about 80% of our probability of, of living a healthy, long, happy life. We're in much more control. But therein lies one of the biggest fundamental problems of health, which is the fact that, as well as looking at health outcomes hard primary outcomes or secondary outcomes, we also need to factor in that this is as much of a behavioral science problem as it is a hard health or physical health problem. I'm very cognizant of that, which is why in this build that we're doing right now, I've been truthfully honest, not only to our design team, but also the folks we work with that we are not solving for the human behavioral challenge. That is a very, very different problem to solve for. What we can try to solve for right now is an audience of people who are committed, i.e. they're doing something about. It, but they may not know whether the thing they're doing is the right thing for them because there's a scarcity of time that all of us experience in our day-to-day lives. So how do we ensure that we're telling them the right thing that they can be doing and then helping monitor and track that information over a period of time? I hope that as an industry, now, and I'm speaking sort of as a digital therapeutic or a prescriptive digital therapeutic industry, I hope there is a period of time as we're able to get the science right in terms of the smart intelligence for the prescriptions and the recommendations, we can then learn from the other things that are going on around us, which are more behavioral change in their science, whether it's nudge theory, whether it's gamification, whether it's reward incentive, all of those things which exist. And let's also be honest that there is a systemic issue that needs to be addressed as we're talking about carbon tax, sugar tax, as we're talking about ease of access to parks, what is the ease of access to actually pick up a bottle of high fructose corn syrup juice in a supermarket. There's so many systemic issues that also need to be solved for as well. And they're not easy to be done. But I think at least in my small part, if we can begin to address this idea about access to data, integration of data, understanding smart intelligence, and then prescriptive nature of that, we can begin to address it for a group of people and then see how we can work with multi-stakeholders over a period of time to address it at a population level.
0: Only one more question to ask, which is, we've addressed the issue of resourcing and how that translates. Here's the rest of it. People are not particularly good intuitive statisticians. I am a statistician by training. And one of the truths we live with is that uh, statistics are counterintuitive. Somewhere in my life, I've just watched somebody go through a corporate transformation where it was explained to them that everything that they were doing, which included massive layoffs, was defined in terms of a bell curve. And the statistics of what they did had nothing. The statistics of what they did were all power curve based, not bell curve based. And a bad interpretation of a power curve. But it was explained to people as a bell curve because the average person believes that all statistics are mean, median, mode, central tendency statistics. They're not. Asking individuals to work with the levels of data that you're talking about, I think, produces challenges at the empowered consumer level in terms of the counterintuitivity of data and the ability to interpret your own data correctly, particularly given that on top of that, the body doesn't always work in intuitive ways. And counterintuitive statistics times counterintuitive data is not one of these two negatives makes a positive. It's much more like an exponential problem. So how do you envision the app being able to use that. And at the same time, provide people with data in a way that they find it credible and educating while dealing with the um, biases around statistics and medicine that you're likely to encounter.
1: That's a massive problem. I completely agree with you. And I think the first design feature, which we are looking at very acutely, is the simplicity. Just ensuring that it is just one dashboard which is being presented to the end user. I think one of the biggest challenges that exists right now in this TG, and I include myself in that, and you've seen the (laughs) devices that I wear, and we've spoken about it multiple occasions, that you have this siloed data which currently sits in. Like, if I'm looking at my CGM data, it is sitting in the device manufacturer's app. If I'm looking at my Apple data, it's in Apple Health. If I'm looking at my Ring data for sleep, it is in the Ring uh, dashboard, etc. And in a person in the user's head, they're having to integrate and bring those numbers together. So I think the first thing that we're trying to do is ensure that simplistically these three or four different streams are put in one place and there's some degree of inference that can be made across them. The idea is not so much necessarily to ask the individual to interpret their data and then decide and choose what they should be doing. The idea really is to present that information to them and show them that based on this, and this is where the smart intelligence comes in, based on this, Mito or the app believes that you could explore doing this. And if you explore doing this, this is how we're going to track and measure whether it is efficacious to you or not. Take an example of better metabolic health. If we have a pre-diabetic and they specifically are looking at maybe improving their glucose variance through the day, then some of the hacks might be specific forms of activity after specific types of eating and showing to them how those glucose curves have flattened over a period of time when they've eaten a particular way, when they've done a particular form of exercise. If they have a hypoglycemic event, show them that it may not just be because of the food you've had, it may be the fact that your REM sleep last night was really poor, or the fact that your heart rate variability was so low, indicating a stress response. So there are some simple things that can be illustrated in a simplistic dashboard to allow people to understand. And that's one of my goals with this. I believe that our greatest asset is this biological machine. Why is that information just limited in the hands of clinicians? doctors and experts. If done in the right way, we can bring the person into that conversation and help them make, feel them empowered. Now, we're not asking them to become statistician. Your point is very well noted, but there are still things or ways that we can communicate this information to them to help them feel empowered. And then therefore, I believe, make them more vested in looking after their own health and care in the long run.
0: It's a fantastic vision, Marcus, and one that I certainly will be interested to see as it evolves. To the degree that you have individuals who are testing for you around the world, um, hopefully you'll be willing to include me in that group and talk to me about how I can start to use this to learn more about myself and also more about the the future of it, because I think it's brilliant. So with that, let me say thank you for today. I'd love to have you back on from time to time to hear about the progress you're making and to use this point of view to comment on some of the things that we look at at the podcast from very, very different kind of perspectives. One thing you've raised this morning that I've not really thought about was mass education on epigenetics. Since increasingly, I think we learned that epigenetics and microbiome are way, way more, well, omics in, gener- in, in general, but specifically for the consumer, epigenetics and microbiome are far more important than the individual tends to appreciate. And finding ways to capture those things in terms that average people can integrate and integrate correctly, I think will be hugely helpful. And I'd love to uh, be able to share with our audience some of your journey as you go there. I'd love to do that. Thank you. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with our first look at next month's Deliver Meeting, the annual AASLD conference. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we look forward to seeing you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.